It's as plain as the nose on your face. I've been nominated for membership in the National Geographic Society. I am a semi-professional race car driver and an amateur tattoo artist. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, as always, this stuff in lieu of actual entertainment. Alrighty then, hello and welcome back. This is Storytime and I am Gamer Dude. Glad to have you with us for some more stories this week. This week we're going to talk about kitchen stuff again. We've talked about cooking and recipes over the years, and I'm going back to it for a slightly different reason this time. With all of us still in kind of a self-imposed quarantine at the time that I'm recording this, I figured looking into the kitchen is a good way to entertain ourselves because we're all spending time eating and drinking and trying to come up with different snacks and different foods and kind of going back to the way things used to be. And when I say that, I mean the way things were when our parents or our grandparents were home much more and baking and cooking in the kitchen. Kitchens were very different when I was a kid. I mean, to this day, the kitchen remains the focal point of most houses. People gather there for their dinners, for their lunches, to mix the drinks, to get the barbecue ready, to do whatever. Everybody gathers in the kitchen. But when I was a kid, actual cooking took place there. I know that sounds weird. We cook in the kitchen now, but we eat takeout. We bring in the Chinese food, we order in. There's a lot less actual cooking now than there used to be. When I was a kid, mom cooked. My mom had recipe books, and she had lots of those recipe books, which I have. I inherited a lot of my mom's recipe books after she passed, and I still use them for certain dishes. Listen to me, calling them recipe books. They're cookbooks. You know what I'm talking about, cookbooks. They're books with recipes in them. So they're recipe books, right? They're cookbooks. But anyway, back in the day, she used them for everything. She had the Betty Crocker cookbook. She had the Better Homes and Gardens cookbook. She had a cookbook called the Settlement Cookbook. Now, these aren't those little pamphlets you find in the supermarket. And anything less than 100 pages to me is a pamphlet. Pillsbury recipes for quick breads. 101 things you do with chocolate. I mean, you see those in the checkout line. Those are not cookbooks to me. I mean, they have recipes in them. But those old school cookbooks, they had an introductory section. They had a section about measuring ingredients. They had a section about substituting ingredients. They had a section about how to heat up the oven properly, how to mix things properly, how to measure things properly. It was almost like taking a home economics class just by reading the introductory paragraphs of any of those cookbooks. So the kitchen was the focal point of the creation of every meal. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, the snacks, the desserts, it all happened in the kitchen. And I got to thinking about the kitchen, too, because I remember we had canisters for various ingredients. And I see them kind of making a comeback. And you know the things that I'm talking about, the jar that says flour, sugar, coffee, tea. Ours were not so formal. We didn't have marked canisters that we displayed on the counter with any kind of a motif. We had two large Tupperware containers for the flour and for the sugar. And I remember that was the big thing. We had these huge Tupperware containers in the pantry. And you could tell by looking because you could see inside the container, this was the flour, this was the sugar. But we had separate containers. We had a separate container for tea bags. Nowadays, we have a fancy tea canister. But back in the day, we had just, you know, whatever we could use. My mom collected Tupperware, so we used a lot of Tupperware. My grandmother had mason jars. She used a lot of mason jars. Same thing with the seasoning, too. We had a seasoning cabinet. We didn't have any fancy canisters like they do now. You get these little containers that are handmarked nutmeg, ginger, paprika. I mean, mom would go to the supermarket and just buy whatever she needed. The McCormick paprika or nutmeg or black pepper or white pepper or whatever seasoning that she needed. 
But the spice containers were just the spice containers you got at the supermarket. The canisters were just whatever you could put your hands on that had a seal so you could keep the sugar fresh, so you could keep the flour dry. That's what we used back in the day. And cooking from scratch was the thing. I mean, you needed those canisters. You needed those ingredients. You needed those spices because everything was from scratch. Hamburger Helper was something that came out in my lifetime to make it easier for people to cook meals. Instead of coming up with a recipe out of a cookbook, you would just dump the Hamburger Helper in with your ground meat and boom, there's your meal. Mom would have recipes for ground beef, for turkey, for chicken. If we wanted potatoes, there weren't instant potatoes. You would peel potatoes or bake potatoes in their peels, depending on how you wanted your potatoes. If you wanted mashed potatoes, you would cook the potatoes, either baking them or boiling them, and then mash them up by hand. There weren't any prepared containers. Bob Evans didn't have any containers in the stores when I was growing up. If you wanted mashed potatoes, you made them from scratch. If you wanted some kind of marinade on your meat, you know what you did? You made a marinade from scratch with ingredients. A little oil, a little water, a little oregano, maybe a little salt, maybe a little pepper. Put that all in a bag or a bowl and let the meat sit in it. That's how you would marinate meat in the day. We didn't have these prepackaged marinades. World's Harbor, McCormick. You did it yourself. Sometimes you did it from a recipe that grandma handed down. Sometimes you made it up yourself. Sometimes you did it from a recipe in Betty Crocker. But you always had a recipe. And actually, one of the things I'm going to do at the end of the episode is I'm going to share another recipe, speaking about recipes. But this, unlike all of the other recipes I've given you, this is not a recipe that I've actually used. I have a little notebook with recipes that my mother had stashed in the cupboard. She had actually a couple of notebooks and one of those little recipe boxes, you know, the old school recipe boxes with the three by five cards in them. She had recipes all over the place. So I have a couple of notebooks with some ancient recipes and I don't know where they came from. And sadly, I have no one that I can ask because no one's left. Were they from my mom? Were they from my grandmother? From my aunt? From my great aunt? From Mrs. Grady down the road? I don't know. But I have a bunch of mystery recipes. Mystery because I don't know where they came from. But I'm going to share one with you. I haven't tried it yet, but I'm going to give you the ingredients. I'm going to tell you what the recipe says. I'm going to try to interpret it for you. And if you want to try it, let me know how it comes out. But that's one of the things that families did in the kitchen. They would use recipes that were either from the cookbook or passed down from generations past. So I have bunches of these mystery recipes, and I'm going to give you one. But we'll get to that in a few minutes. But back to the kitchen. Grandma, Ma, my aunt... Everybody would do things in the kitchen that we're just starting to do again because we have the time to do it. For instance, how many people are baking bread now? If you've been to a supermarket in the past few weeks, flour, yeast, these are things in short supply now because people are trying to bake bread again. My mother used to bake bread all the time. Sometimes a yeast bread, which requires time. The dough has to rise. It has to be kneaded. It has to be punched down. It has to rise again. She would do that. And she would make the quick breads that don't require yeast. Banana bread, zucchini bread, all different kinds of bread that don't require yeast but are still really good. There's something about baking bread that just feels good and the smell in the house, it's so good. So baking bread was a thing we used to do and we're starting to do it again. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because home-baked bread is so much better than anything you can get in the store. Forget the smell in the house. With all of the preservatives they put in store-bought bread, once you have home-baked bread, you're not going to want to go to the store anymore. You're going to want to do it yourself. And that's not just white bread. If you start using rye flour or wheat flour, you start combining different grains, you come up with all kinds of different flavors. And they're all so much better 
than you're going to get in a store-bought bread. And then, of course, sourdough. Yes, sourdough bread requires a lot more work than regular yeast bread. You have to have a sourdough starter. That can take a week to make. But people used to do that as a regular thing. By the way, sourdough starter, if you do any research about sourdough bread, you'll see that making sourdough, not a complicated process. But back in the olden days, grandma would make a sourdough starter and the base of it would literally last for years and she would pass it on to her daughter and then she would pass it on to her daughter because the base you just keep in the fridge for forever as long as you keep it working. I'm not going to bore you with all the details of sourdough bread. I'm sure you've heard a lot about sourdough bread over the past few weeks. If you're at all interested in it, there is a lot of information out there about it. But that was a thing. You would pass sourdough starter on to your kids because everybody made bread. So if you're making sourdough starter now, set some aside so you can pass it on. But yeah, homemade bread is so good, so tasty. And if you haven't taken the time now to make some, go do it. Now's the perfect time to get back into the way things used to be. The same applies to homemade pasta. Now, I've never made homemade pasta. I've actually never had homemade pasta that I made or that my mother made because my mother didn't make pasta. But I've had homemade pasta and it's really good. Just like homemade bread, homemade pasta is something that used to be done all of the time. I mean, depending on your family and where you were from. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with buying a box of Barilla pasta and cooking it and eating it. That's fine. But there is a difference. So if you get the chance and you have the equipment, homemade pasta is worth the effort. Here's another thing that's worth the effort that I remember doing when I was a kid and I still do, but now you have the time to do it. Grating your own cheese. It sounds weird, right? Well, I could just buy a bag of grated cheese. It's not the same. I'm not sure why, but if you get a block of cheddar cheese from the store, even if you're just buying a block of Cracker Barrel, you cut it open, you bring out your cheese grater, and you grate yourself cheese. It tastes better. To me, it tastes better. Same if you get a block of Parmesan or Romano. Parmesan is a very hard cheese, but it grates very easily. And there's something about your own grated Romano or Parmesan that gives it some kind of added flavor. I don't know if it's because you did it yourself, but I remember when I was a kid, if you wanted grated cheese, that's what you would do. You would buy a block of cheese, get the cheese grater out, and grate your cheese. And then if you were sprinkling it on nachos or on mashed potatoes or whatever you were using it for, that's the only way you could do it. Now you can go buy bags of grated cheese, but it's not the same. So if you want to try something that's different... By today's standards, grate your own cheese. Here's another one for you. Percolated coffee. When I was a kid, the only way you could have a cup of coffee was either instant coffee. That's the little crystals that are in a jar. You take a spoonful, put it in a cup, add hot water, boom, instant coffee. Or you take ground coffee and put it in a percolator. There wasn't a Mr. Coffee machine. There wasn't a Keurig. You could either percolate your coffee or have instant, and those were the choices. Now, what is percolated coffee? Well, you have a pot and there's a little stand in there with a hollow tube in the middle of it with a basket that fits on top of that. And you put your ground coffee in the basket and put a little lid on top of that. And then you put the lid on the coffee pot and you put that on the stove and you bring it to a boil so it starts percolating. Then you turn the heat down and the hot water bubbles up through the tube in the middle and drips down on the coffee. And it's a process that takes about 10 minutes after the boiling to get a good, full, rich cup of coffee. Now, what's different about coffee in a percolator versus coffee through Mr. Coffee or a Keurig? I don't know exactly what the difference is, except it tastes so much better. We found an old Corning percolator at an auction a few years back. And I said to Mrs. Gamer Dude, let's try it. 
Let me tell you, percolated coffee is better than anything you're going to get out of a Keurig. It's better than anything you're going to get out of a Mr. Coffee. There's something about the process that releases flavor from the coffee that is better than any other way that I've made it. I don't know if it's because the water filters through the grounds multiple times. I don't know if it's because you're using super hot boiling water. Because no matter how hot the Keurig or the Mr. Coffee gets, it's not boiling water. Maybe the boiling water releases more flavor. I don't know. All I know is percolated coffee is a lot better than any of the other alternatives. So if you've got time and you have an old percolator that somebody stored in the back of the closet, or you find one at a garage sale, or you order one from Amazon, if you take the time to make percolated coffee, it's totally worth it. And by the way, with percolated coffee, measuring is important. I mean, it's not critical. It's not rocket science. But if you have a six-cup percolator, you use the six-cup line, put water in there, and use a tablespoon of coffee for each cup. And by the way, on those old percolators, six cups is the old school cups. It's not the giant mugs that we have now. People used to drink coffee in smaller quantities. An old school coffee cup was about six ounces, maybe eight. If you measure out your coffee mug that you usually use, it's probably at least 10, maybe 12 ounces. So factor that in when you're buying an old school percolator and using it. Six old school cups is probably two and a half mugs of coffee. It's just the way our tastes have changed over the years. We like lots of coffee now. But... My point is, if you have a six-cup percolator, fill it up to the line that says six, and then use six tablespoons of coffee, and that works perfectly. One tablespoon for every cup. That's the rule of thumb to keep in your head. But if you have the time, and you have a percolator, it's worth the effort. One of the other things that takes time and takes some effort, and it's something my grandmother did occasionally, but my great-aunt did more often, was make preserves. Jams, jellies, preserves, whatever you want to call them. I've mentioned it before, but my great aunt was a great one for making jelly. Now, I've never done it. I don't know what the process is. I know my brother-in-law does it now, currently. They preserve everything. They preserve vegetables. They preserve fruits. They do a whole canning process. And that's what those mason jars are for. I mean, you see the mason jars all over as decoration. People make lamps out of them. People use them to keep pencils on their desktop. People use them to make their kitchens look like their functional kitchens. Mason jars actually have a function. They have those dual lids and they seal tight. That's part of the preserving process. It takes a fair amount of time to do it correctly and you have to make sure all of your equipment is properly sterilized, but it's worth it because I remember my aunt's jam. Oh my goodness, that stuff was so good. There's recipes for homemade preserves out there. I've looked them up. I've looked up the equipment and I've also looked at the time it takes to do it right. So I've never had the time to do it But these days, since so many of us are not going anywhere because we can't, maybe doing some homemade preserves, especially now that spring is around and summer's not far away, if we have the time because we don't have that many places to go, making some homemade strawberry jam might be the way to go. Making some homemade strawberry jam is going to taste a whole lot better than a jar of Smucker's. Oh, the taste of my great aunt's strawberry jam. Mm -mm Mm-mm-mm. Now, I mentioned to you at the beginning of the episode that I have a whole bunch of recipes from various locations that my mother had collected. Some are in one of those old recipe boxes. Some are in some little notebooks. Some are in some big notebooks. And they are all in different people's handwritings, so I'm not sure who wrote them. I mean, I can tell my grandmother's handwriting. I think I know my great-aunt's handwriting, and I think I know my aunt's handwriting, but I'm not sure. So the source of a lot of these recipes, I'm just simply not sure of. And they have some great titles, and they're interesting to me. I mean, apple puffs. That sounds good, right? There's one called Whipped Prune Cake. That sounds interesting, I guess. 
There's one called Snappy Pineapple Punch. May have to try that sometime. But the one I was going to share with you today is called Lemon Sponge Pudding. And I liked it because it's a pudding kind of like Maz was talking about in our Discord. For those who don't know, we have a Discord that's based on what I do on my Twitch stream. And Maz was talking about various puddings that he made. This sounds like one of those kind of puddings, which has a flour base, basically. Now, the way these recipes are set up, all in the book, they list all the ingredients first, kind of like you do in pretty much any cookbook. And then there's kind of an explanation of what to do in the body of the recipe. But as I've read through these recipes, a lot of them take kind of a basic understanding of what you're supposed to do when you're baking or cooking. So the recipes are kind of subject to interpretation as you read them. But this one sounded interesting, so I'm going to give it to you. Try it. I've never tried this, so I can't tell you if it's tasty, if it's not, if it's great, if it's horrible. But I like all the ingredients, so how bad could it be? So here's the mystery recipe for lemon sponge pudding. It says you need a cup of sugar, three tablespoons of flour, a pinch of salt, two eggs, a tablespoon of melted butter, a cup of milk, and the juice and rind of one lemon. Now it says here the rind of a lemon. In today's parlance, when we're talking about the rind of a lemon these days, we talk about lemon zest. They didn't call it lemon zest back in the day. They would say you need the rind of a lemon. And here's how I know that. Here's the first step in the recipe. Mix sugar, flour, salt, and grated rind and juice of lemon. So whoever wrote the recipe is telling you, grate the lemon rind. So that's what you do with a lemon rind. You put it on the grater. The grater that I mentioned before, you use the finest little setting on it, and you rub the lime back and forth or lemon back and forth, and that's how you get all the zest off of it. That's what it means when it says the grated lemon rind. You're grating all of the color off of the lemon, and that's the lemon zest or the lemon rind. So according to the recipe, you mix all that stuff up. First step. Then you add the butter, the milk, and the slightly beaten egg yolks. Okay, so they weren't really clear at the very beginning of the recipe, but what you're going to have to do is separate your eggs. And I've talked about this in the past, but what that means is you crack the egg open, you let the white drip out into a cup, and you keep the yolk in the eggshell. It's hard for me to describe how to do it. You can look up videos on how to separate an egg. That's what you want to do. You want to separate the egg. So you're going to separate two eggs here. You need two egg yolks in one bowl and two egg whites in the other bowl. And you'll see why you need the egg whites in just a second. But to repeat that, it said, add butter, milk, and slightly beaten egg yolks. So again, interpreting the recipe for you, you need to take the egg yolks, beat them a little bit with a fork, add the melted butter and the milk, and then pour that in the original mixture. The next step in the recipe, fold in stiffly beaten egg whites. Now, what does that mean? Okay, well, as I said, you've separated your eggs. You have a bowl with the yolk, and you have a bowl with the whites. You're going to put the egg whites in the mixing bowl. If you have a little hand mixer, that's the best way to do it. But if you don't, use a whisk or use anything to beat those egg whites until they're frothy, until there's some air in them. That's what stiffly beaten egg whites are. And if you've never done this, it's going to freak you out a little. Because if you have egg whites and you beat them for about four minutes, it takes, if you have an electric mixer... The egg whites become stiff and airy, and for lack of a better term, poofy. So you're going to take those stiffly beaten egg whites and fold them in. That means gently mix into that whole pile of stuff you've already got in a bowl. Now, the next step of the recipe says, set in pan of water and bake. So we've left out a couple of important things. Presumably, you're making this in a mixing bowl. You're obviously not going to put the mixing bowl in the oven. So what you're going to have to do is transfer everything that's in this mixing bowl that you've just put together into some kind of baking dish. 
the recipe doesn't tell us how big a baking dish. So what the hell are we going to do? Well, we're going to use our best estimate. Since I've never made this, I don't know how big a dish we should use. But I'm going to look at it. Mm, a cup of sugar, cup of milk. It's not a huge baking dish. Maybe like a two-quart casserole? Maybe. A cake pan would probably work if you have an eight- or nine-inch cake pan. That would probably work, too. Depends on what you've got. But it says set in pan of water. That's something that you do with puddings, these baked puddings. You cook them in a pan of water. It helps keep it moist. It helps the way it sets. So you need to put your cake pan or your casserole or whatever you're using to cook your pudding in inside a bigger pan. So that's something you have to factor in, too. If you have a cookie sheet, for instance, that has edges, that'll work. If you have a roasting pan, like the thing you use to cook the turkey in at Thanksgiving, that'll work. But you need to put your casserole or your cake pan with your mixture in it in a pan of water. And then put that whole pan into the oven. And it says here, 350 degrees, 30 minutes. I'm going to assume that works. I don't know for sure, but I'm going to try it at some point. But that's a recipe that's been handed down to me. I have yet to make it. But now I'm handing it out to you guys, and you can try it too. It sounds like it would be good, but I guess the only way to know for sure is to give it a try. So I will at some point. I don't know, though. I may try the apple puffs first. Apple puffs sounds good. As I mentioned, I do have a bunch of these mystery recipes. I'm thinking I may do a podcast episode just on the mystery recipes, because I have tons of them I've never made, but they sound interesting. I have one for a vinegar pie. I'm not sure how good a vinegar pie could be, but it's a recipe. People obviously made it, and it was good enough to write down. So maybe we'll share a recipe for a vinegar pie in an upcoming episode. But there's soup recipes, there's chicken recipes, there's salad recipes. I have a whole lot of recipes that I really should pull out and try at some point. And maybe I'll just share them with you too. If I don't get to them, maybe you will. I've said it in many of my episodes about food and cooking. Cooking is like jazz. You can improvise, you can go off the sheet music and kind of make things up as you go. And I think a lot of these recipes allow for that. But even if you follow them to the letter, there's a lot of flavor combinations and a lot of things that we don't see these days that will make cooking seem exciting even if you follow the recipe to the T. So that's something we can look forward to in the future. In the meantime, let me know how this pudding comes out. Anyway... That's going to do it for this week's episode of Storytime. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for listening. And thank you for being a part of things. I really do appreciate you taking the time to be here. And I appreciate all your support. Until next time, you guys take care of yourselves. Be careful out there. Sanitize. And I'll see you when I see you.